1: A couple of quick things before we get started today. First, if you are a Politics Guy silver, gold, or platinum level supporter, we owe you a spiffy Politics Guy sticker mailed to you free of charge. I got the stickers in not too long ago, but there was a problem with the logo, and so I need to put in a new order. Things are kind of crazy around here now. There's the election, obviously, but we're also getting a puppy later on today because, well, we only have the three dogs now. Uh, But I will get to the stickers, I promise, though it might take a while longer. Thank you very much for your patience. Also, the Politics Guys now has a listener message line. If you've got a question, comment, or correction for our listener mail segment or a potential Ask the Politics Guys question, you can now leave a voicemail message with us. And if we use it, we can let you speak for yourself instead of us reading your words. If you want to try it out, give us a call at 408-840-3518. Tell us your name, where you're from, and then your comment, correction, or question. Again, that number is 408 408- Eight four zero three five one eight, And we've got that number on the website too. And of course, that's politicsguys.com. You know, we're always trying to come up with things like this to make the show better and more responsive to our listeners. But of course, that takes time and resources, both of which can be tough to come by. So if you like what we've been doing and you're in a position to help us out financially, we would really appreciate it if you consider joining our group of generous donors. To do that, just go to the website, again, politicsguys.com, and click on the PayPal link you'll find there. Thanks. Now, finally, our biggest announcement. Over the next few weeks, Jay and I will be bringing on a few people as guest hosts to do the podcast with us. A number of listeners have mentioned that, to this point, the show's been all middle-aged white guys talking to other middle-aged or older white guys, and we'd like to change that. So please let us know what you think about our guest hosts and this new three-person format. And if all goes well and you like what you hear, we hope to have a third uh, politics person, I guess, uh, not a guy, uh, on a permanent basis. Now, today, actually, Jay has had some technical difficulties, and so he can't be here. So I'm joined by Dominique Wagner, a friend of mine who's a Cincinnati area attorney, though not one of those crushed a little guy under the boot of the man type attorneys like Jay is. Dominique, welcome to the show. Why, thank you. I'm happy to be here. And we're just going to jump right in and get started with uh, our top story this week, multiple terror attacks. The first was the mass stabbing of 10 people in a Minnesota mall, which happened last Saturday. The attacker, 20-year-old Dahir Ahmed was a Somali refugee who came to the United States as an infant. And on Sunday, ISIS claimed responsibility for the act. The other attacks, which got a lot more media attention, were multiple bombings in New York. One along the route of a Marine Corps charity run, where no one was injured, and then a second bombing in Manhattan, where 31 people were injured. Following this, authorities discovered multiple bombs in a train station in New Jersey. And early this week, police arrested 28-year-old Ahmad Khan Rahami and charged him with the crimes. Rahami was born in Afghanistan and came to the United States in 1995, becoming a naturalized U.S. citizen in 2011. And he'd been on the FBI's radar for a brief period in 2014 when his father told the FBI that he thought his son might be a terrorist. Now, some people say that these lone wolf type attacks are likely to become even more common and that they're almost impossible to prevent. Um, what do you think about all this, Dominique?
0: Well, I actually think that lone wolf attacks are going to become more and more common in the United States. I think that at this point, um, we have sort of accepted the fact that we are going to be facing uh, terrorist attacks um, and you know large-scale terrorist attacks with terrorist cells and all, you know all of this advanced planning it, it takes a lot of resources it takes a lot of uh, security breaches on, on our part and in terms of lone wolf uh, attacks, I think um, they're a lot easier to pull off. I think that there are way more people in this country who um, who are becoming radicalized uh, not only because of um, the general climate in the country, which tends to be um, more and more uh, anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim, um, but I think you pair that with uh, potential uh mental mental illness um potential you know just um radicalization of an of a uh, an ideology and um and fairly easy access to uh different types of weaponry and and you know, I think we're just going to see a lot more of this.
1: Yeah, you know, that well, one of the things you mentioned kind of ties right into something that Hillary Clinton has been saying is that Donald Trump is a great recruiter for these groups because of his anti-immigrant and uh, anti-Muslim particularly stances. Uh, you know, it, it it seems to me that, uh, well, the other view is something that I think uh, Trump and some conservatives would say is that this clearly is a, an intelligence failure, a failure of the FBI. They knew this guy was questionable, and they, they dropped him. They did a, a brief kind of investigation. I think they call it an assessment. Um, and so there are some people who are saying what we really need is we just need to radically increase the number of checks. We need to pay a lot closer to attention to these people and just really you know, crank up the, the, the law enforcement and, and that sort of thing. Do you think that's a, that's a viable response? I mean, I do think that –
0: one thing I think that the American people in general don't particularly understand is how hard it does tend to be to get into this country, right, especially um, on a refugee status. And I think when it comes to – when you're looking at the um, different responses from Trump and Clinton, Trump went kind of – In the uh, normal Trump doubling down, we have to keep immigrants out um, in order to protect our national safety, Um, you know, Clinton kind of went the other way in terms of uh, we need to be making sure that we're uh, making people feel more included um, and, you know, not giving them a reason to become radicalized. But in terms of um, upping the amount of time that we spend tracking people, I mean, you know, this guy obviously should have been tracked a little bit uh, better. He's been on the FBI list since 2014. He had his own family members reporting him. Um, So I do think there was some sort of failure um, in terms of, you know, our government um, in keeping an eye on him. Um, but generally, when you look at the fact that, you know, these attacks are relatively rare, um, it seems like we are doing a fairly good job at uh, keeping an eye on potential suspects.
1: Right. Yeah, I think that that's a good point. Is we don't hear about the all the attacks that didn't happen and so forth, and, and of course it takes a lot of resources to continually monitor people and so forth. It's not like it's not like on TV where these agencies just have you know limitless resources for this sort of thing. But I think that's one of the reasons why one of Trump's arguments about this, as I understand it, is is so uh, resonates so much, and it's that. That we need to keep these people out in the first place because it's a lot easier to keep them out than to let them in and try to watch them. And so if we just close our borders to these people, and, and Donald Trump on a number of occasions has said, until we figure this out, we should just essentially drastically reduce or even halt uh, I- immigration in, in countries that have terrorist issues and ties and so forth. And so I think to a lot of people, they hear this and say, yeah, that makes An awful lot of sense to me but uh, i mean does that make sense to you
0: well i you know one of the one of the major problems i see with trump's um general campaign strategy is it seems to um all sort of boil down to building different walls
1: (laughs) right that's like a wall yeah good wall
0: keep the let's uh let's make sure we keep the mexicans out let's make sure we keep the immigrants out let's say i mean you almost wonder at what point he's going to suggest that we build a wall around the entire united states and and you know just sort keep of the canadians out com- you know yeah coming in and out in general um in term a it's not the best strategy and you know the other the other part of it that we have to look at in terms of um you know what how much uh the police are uh watching what they're what they're surveilling is you know it's it's really easy to just go well we need the police to be watching everybody on these lists you know and what what we don't realize is we do have this constitution right we need to make sure that we're not infringing upon it we Uh, just because it's convenient, just because um, we have an interest in in our own safety. I mean, there is a a definite balance that we have to strike. Um, And, you know, we're going to have people who are reported as potential suspects. Um, The way that the, you know, our system currently works is until you've committed a crime, uh, you are, you know, considered innocent and, and you do have the the right to be left alone. You do have the right to be um, uh, limited, you know, uh, limited in terms of how much the government can uh, sure. surveil you. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I think I think in the end, my, my my takeaway on this is that this is just an extraordinarily difficult problem and anyone who's proffering a simple and easy solution whether it's uh, increased monitoring or, or keep them all out is almost certainly at least part wrong or, or certainly not not going to really be nearly as effective it's the kind of thing that sounds good perhaps in a, a campaign uh, aligning a campaign but as a, as a matter of policy is woefully incomplete I'd say
0: and, and I think that what people really in the end are searching for, right, is we all want to feel safe. We all want to feel protected. Sure. And so what we're searching for is this perfect balance. We're searching for a balance between um, keeping an eye on people who potentially want to um, commit terrorist attacks and um, also preserving sort of the the freedom and the right to be left alone that Americans kind of cherish and that's embedded in, in our culture and what we believe in. And, you know, that balance is, it's almost, it's impossible to strike. So, you know, we're going to have to lean in one direction or another we're going to either have uh terrorist attacks that happen, and it's going to be unfortunate or we're going to have to decide, hey, big brother is uh here and watching at all times and right. um you know and accept that
1: yeah we want we want to be safe, but we don't want to be a surveillance state and that's that's a tough thing to to figure out the balance between it's a good point um, okay um moving on uh to uh, well, away from that a little bit, uh, something, unfortunately, on the show, uh, we've had to talk about far too much. Uh, more black men being shot and killed by police. Now, in this, yes. uh, you know, in, in this case, we have kind of, I think, sort of a study in contrasts. Uh, we have Tulsa, Oklahoma, where Officer Betty Shelby killed Terrence, Terrence Crutcher. Now, the police released that video right away. The officer was charged with felony first-degree manslaughter, and there was no civil unrest. But then in Charlotte, North Carolina, where Officer Brentley Vinson killed Keith Scott on Tuesday, the police department refused to release any video until Saturday. And that was only after a public outcry and multiple nights of protest in the city. With the situation becoming so serious that North Carolina Governor Pat McCrory declared an emergency and Charlotte police had to resort to tear gas to to disperse protesters. And even that wasn't enough, really. It wasn't until Keith Scott's widow released the video she taken, and I saw the video. It's one that, you know, didn't have any clear evidence, but it definitely did not make the police look good. It was only after that that the Charlotte police released their video. So, what do you what do you think about uh, all of this, Dominique? Well,
0: you know, first of all. I mean, we're in September of 2016, and we've already had 194 um, black people who have been shot and killed by the police. So, you know, obviously, you're going to have situations where the police need to use deadly force. And I'm never going to say that that is um, never uh, justified. But I do think that we have a problem in terms of how often it is used and um, how disproportionately it's used against uh, black men. Um, You know, black men between the ages of 15 and 34 are nine times more likely to be killed by police than any other demographic. And, you know, so what I see in terms of these two situations is, And I think we've seen this in the past is transparency on the part of the uh, police um, departments and um, how important and how far that goes in terms of um, being able to keep calm um, in cities when, you know, I think when the citizenry feels like the police are saying, Okay. Yes, we have a problem. Here is all of the information that we can give you. In light of the fact that this is an ongoing investigation, we want to hear uh, your thoughts on the matter. Um, that people generally feel heard, and when they feel heard, they feel um, uh, they they feel less rage about the situation.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, but but that's just uh the tip of the iceberg right that's that's the way to keep um, keep things calm after the fact right you know there's there's before the fact there's the lead up there's how do we change this actual systemic problem sure.
1: yeah and that's that's a i mean that's obviously a much bigger issue and, and my My take on this for a long time has been that this isn't anything that has been going on for, well, for generations, and I would be willing to bet that the police are probably a lot better in terms of how they deal with minorities than they were in the past, but the difference, of course, is video, and everyone has cameras, and this is coming out, and all of a sudden, in the space of a few short years, police who were used to... Doing some doing things in a certain way. Now they're facing an entirely new reality. And the changeover has been uh, well rocky, to say the least. So I don't think there's any explosion in police violence against minorities. I just think for the first time it's being shown on, you know, shown on video. And that's that's huge.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, when I, you know, in when I was a teenager, I went and actually visited the vestibule where Amadou Diallo was shot, and he was shot. He was shot at forty-one times mm-hmm. by the cops. He was hit, I believe, twenty. And the vestibule that he was shot in, I mean, you you would not even believe the amount of um, bullet holes. And you know, you hear the stories that he's reaching for his uh, his ID and. He doesn't speak English and and there is no recording. And so, you know, it kind of gets swept under the rug, even though it makes people a little uneasy. And now, you know, you're starting to see, okay, people have smartphones. People are brave enough because I do want to mention the fact that it takes a lot of courage to um, to be recording these things. I mean, the people who have recorded these things have faced a lot of um, issues, have been arrested and. I personally would not want to be arrested after recording a cop, uh, shooting somebody. Uh, you know, I don't know what people would be facing in jail.
1: Sure.
0: Um, but, but for sure this, there isn't an explosion in, in the amount of police brutality that's been going on. It's definitely a matter of, of smartphones and other recording devices that, um, are bringing to light, um, you know, a lot of the issues that, uh, quite frankly, the black community has been saying have been going on for uh,
1: decades. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's one other element of this that I I wanted to bring up, and I find myself kind of torn on this. There's a law in North Carolina set to go into effect on October 1st that says that the police uh, don't release this video evidence except with a court order. And the rationale for this law I sort of get. And the rationale is that you don't want these things being sort of tried in public and a video itself, even though we think that a video tells you everything you need to know, oftentimes it doesn't. And so in a way, I'm sort of sympathetic to that. But in another way, I guess I feel like given the the huge history of, of mistrust, especially between minority communities and the police, that sort of law makes that even worse. And so while I, I sort of get the intent of it, I, I just, it's sort of, I don't know, I have a problem with it. What, what do you think? I mean, is, this a, is there a good rationale for this law, do you think?
0: No, I don't think it's a good rationale. First of all, what other potential crime is there where the press does not release any video that we have, right? I mean, the public has a right to um, to the press, and and the press has the right to. I mean, this is sort of an established issue, and you see states do this all the time. They pass laws, and then these laws sort of snake their way through the federal courts, and eventually they're ruled unconstitutional. And that's what I see happening with this. And you know, eventually, it's going to be a matter of. Um, You know, sunshine laws state that if the press requests a video, unless you have a very specific reason for not releasing it, um, you have to release it to the press. Um, Do I, you know, do I understand in some way that there's an ongoing investigation and so the police want to hold um, their cards as close to their, their chest as possible? In some regard, but I feel like that is inching so close to this idea of the thin blue line um, and wanting to be able to, you know, we've seen in the past over and over and over um, police departments um, have an event that happens and then they look at everything. They come up with a narrative that explains the issue um, in in the best light of the police officer or officers involved. And then the press is the one who has to dig and dig and dig in order to get the information that really exposes what has happened. Yeah. And so, you know, a law like this, I I don't really think it does anything good for the community. I think that it, um, I I think it's good for the police. <laughs> um But that's
1: about it. Yeah, yeah. I I guess, and it's hard for me to appreciate this, and I recognize this that as a as a white male, uh, that I mean, I've never really seen the police as a threat in any way. I've never. I mean, there's no such thing as driving while white, obviously. And I guess I appreciate the fact that I cannot understand how minority communities feel about the police. That sort of visceral sort of. Feeling that, that I think, you know, has clearly a lot of basis in past activities. And so it, it almost makes me a little hesitant to to you know, speak on this issue because I recognize that there's that huge subtext of generations and generations that that makes it difficult for me to really appreciate. It's easy for me to say, well, you should just trust the police. But uh, if, if you're if you're a black man, you have a, a lot of a lot of reasons. I think decent reasons to not necessarily be so trusting.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, the way that, um, I think that if white communities started to get policed in the way that black communities get policed, we would see, um, some major changes very quickly. And I say that not only as, you know, somebody who has, you know, obviously I have a lot of privilege in terms of being white and being fairly comfortable with, Trusting the police, but I also, from a professional standpoint, have seen, you know, uh, just the differences in in the way that communities are policed, and it's it, it's a problem. Um, and and really, I think that you know, police shootings are sort of on the far end of the spectrum. But if we are really going to get to the root of the problem. Um, We have to start with sort of the and sexy isn't the right word, but the non sexy part of it, which is, you know, how do we start to police communities fairly and equally? Um, And, you know, that that really is the starting point.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Absolutely. You know, that's interesting. You mentioned you mentioned that because this relates very much to uh, a Donald Trump story, actually, from this week. And, of course, Donald Trump had yet another interesting week. It seems like all of his weeks are interesting. But there was he announced essentially a wholehearted embrace of a, a stop and frisk policy, which he claims was tremendously successful in New York City. And, of course, that policy is no longer being used there because the courts found that it was being carried out in an unconstitutional manner due to its disparate impact on minorities. And, uh, you know, criminal justice researchers are somewhat divided on the utility of stop and frisk. But one thing we know for sure is that it's extraordinarily unpopular with, with well, with the minorities that Donald Trump says should give him a chance because they've got nothing to lose. Uh, you know, what, what do you think about the stop-and-frisk and Donald Trump's uh, embrace of it?
0: Well, it doesn't surprise me that Donald Trump embraces uh, stop-and-frisk policies. I mean, first of all, I, I'll i be entirely honest. I see Donald Trump as a fairly racist human being, um, I and I think that on some level he knows that stop-and-frisk um, policies disproportionately impact um, – Uh, the black community um, in terms of harassment by police. um, You know, I, when I was a prosecutor, I saw case after case come in um, that started just with stop and frisk um, uh, policing. And, you know, they were, they were never from, uh, they were never people from Hyde Park. Right. Let's just say, right. Um, So, you know, his idea that, um, the using stop and frisk, um, more aggressively would somehow stop violence in the black community or would lessen violence in the black community, um, doesn't surprise me because it's sort of, um, you know, it, it really lines up with this kind of, um, almost, uh, fascist uh leaning that i see him having um you know and i think he uh he also has uh a very misguided understanding of what the black community is actually really like i don't think he really understands um black black communities in general um so, you know, it, and to be entirely honest, one thing that really worries me in terms of Donald Trump being president is I don't think that he actually has any clue that um, stop and frisk has been ruled on un- unconstitutional in its application in New York. And... Um, and I don't think he cares, yeah, even yeah. if he did know
1: that. Yeah, and I, and I think it's important to point out that not only is it unconstitutional, but you know, Donald Trump is right in the sense where he said that crime went down after stop and frisk was implemented. But this is a case where correlation doesn't necessarily imply causation, as, as social scientists like myself would say, confusingly maybe. But the point being is that that crime continued; that those rates continued to go down after stop and frisk was stopped. So it seems like that's probably not the factor. But again, this is one of these inconvenient facts that uh, I think Donald Trump is ignoring on this, you know. Um, I,
0: I totally agree. And, you know, I think that the other problem that I have with Trump is I think that his understanding is, well, if I was president, you know, I would... I can see him saying things like I would make stop and frisk a national policy and having absolutely really no understanding of the limitations of the power of the presidency. Um, You know, and, and that is, you know, that's sort of its own tangent, but but also very worrisome. Oh yeah. Um, You know, because I, I don't think he really has a full grasp of, um, the the separate branches of government and and where they um, where their powers fall and where they um, you yeah.
1: know yeah, where I they d- don't th- fall yeah I think that's fairly <laughs> safe to say absolutely um you know there was another Trump story this week that maybe didn't get uh, as much play as 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 I thought it should have I I'd almost make it an under the radar story we're not not doing that this week but this was the allegations that the Trump Foundation used over a quarter million dollars of foundation money None of which was actually donated by Donald Trump, I should point out because i don 't know charities for losers, I guess he would say um to <coughs> you know to to settle his legal problems and and not only that, but it's been alleged that Trump has kept for his own personal use several items purchased with foundation money, uh, most notably a Tim Tebow autographed football, and not one but two portraits of Donald Trump, one of them a six foot tall portrait yikes um yeah. yeah, so you know it seems to me. That here we have an instance where one candidate, Hillary Clinton, has a foundation where, okay, some questionable stuff might have gone on. But in Trump's case, there seems to be a whole lot less doubt that some downright illegal stuff was going on. I mean, is that, is that how you see it? Absolutely. I mean, first
0: of all, I want to point out that Trump did pay $12,000 for an autographed Tim Tebow uh, football <laughs> helmet. So... <laughs> Yeah. My, my He has questionable judgment as <laughs> Sorry, far as but, I'm yeah. concerned anyway. But, you know, the problem with this charity and when you look at the Clinton charity, you know, I know there's all of this sort of hoopla going on around um, the Clinton charity. But, you know, with Trump's charity, if you go to Clinton's charity website, they have very specific um issues that they lay out in terms of what they're trying to improve. Trump's charity, uh, you know, this foundation actually has no philanthropic point that it, that it really can speak of or charitable purpose. And uh, yet as a, you know, as a 501 C three, it's, supposed to have a purpose right. and it's supposed to be following these laws, including, um, you know, not using political donations for self-dealing. Um, and the thing that bothers me the most about this, I think, is the fact that people sort of go, well, that's Trump just doing what Trump does.
1: Breaking and all off. And then you
0: have, <laughs> on the other side, you have Clinton who you know, I can't say she's followed every rule to the T, but I can say she's done a lot of very good work with the Clinton Foundation and people are just hammering her.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, on one hand, I I guess some people would say, well, the difference is, is that uh, Hillary Clinton as an office holder had a position of public trust that she may have abused. And so that's a little bit more serious than than a businessman trying to you know creating an advantage for himself in whatever kind of ways by not just skirting the law but breaking the law essentially that's the kind of argument i've heard
0: and And I understand that. But at the same point, at the same time, Donald Trump is trying to sell us on the fact that he has the integrity and the honesty and the character in order to be the president of the United States. And at the same time, he's using, you know, I mean, $250,000 is not a small chunk of change. And he's using that to settle legal problems, you know, and, and that brings up a bigger issue for me, which is if he does become president, you know, what happens to all of these business interests? You know, he, what happens to, how are they divided? How are they, you know, I, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what, if anyone knows what that looks like, because it's been sort of an unprecedented issue.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's not that it's not like presidents have any legal obligation to put their assets into a blind trust. And uh, uh, so, you know, Donald Trump could essentially do whatever he wants. And for a lot of people, that's, uh, I think, understandably kind of troubling.
0: Right. And I have to say that, you know, um, Trump's uh, current campaign manager um, in a CNN interview, she was quoted as saying Donald Trump has been incredibly generous over the course of his life. Asked if that meant when Trump's um, with Trump's own money, she replied, "With his own money and his foundation's money, which is his money." <laughs> Asked if he would document his alleged generosity, she replied, "I doubt it. This is like badgering. <laughs> I don't see it as journalism." Yeah, <laughs> and I just I read that and thought to myself, "I, you know, who who's running?" That goat rodeo,
1: yeah, so one final thing I think we should mention of the the week in Trump is that uh this week that lion Ted Cruz said that, after a lot of prayer and soul searching and so forth, that he would actually be voting for Trump, but I don't know that was that kind of came out of the blue, especially after his performance at the at the convention where he was practically booed off the stage for telling people to vote their consciences uh what, what did you think did that surprise you
0: oh I, you know. Ted Cruz, I, nothing surprises me at this point. I, I was, well, I was a little bit surprised that he came out and decided that he would support Donald Trump. But at this point, I think that what is happening within the Republican Party is, you know, individually, Republicans are looking at their own futures. Um... You know, as as political candidates, as, you know, just politicians in general, and they're they're weighing out, um, should they support him or should they not? And, you know, Donald Trump is such a wild card that my guess is that probably changes from week to week. And so um, did it did it shock me? No. You know, I think that the Republican Party has some overall interest in um, in pulling themselves together um, and being a coherent party um, but you know I, I did think he would be one of the last holdouts. Yeah
1: yeah i think he's I think you're right he's made a strategic calculation, just like for instance how John Kasich I think has also made a strategic calculation he has He has been i think very firmly anti trump uh, uh, all the way along and and i I'd like to think he's doing that at least in part out of some sense of principle and integrity, but I also feel fairly certain that he believes that Donald Trump is going to lose, and then coming into 2020, he will be uh, fairly well positioned to be a sane alternative for the party. And so I think there's I, definitely that going on.
0: I could not agree more. And in fact, from the beginning of this uh, this um, election, I I've told many people, Kasich was the person that I was most afraid of. And when he dropped out, it was a sigh of relief for me because, you know, I think, I think he's a dangerous candidate. I think he could, I think had he had better name recognition, he could have, um, uh, taken the nomination. And quite frankly, I think he could have beaten Hillary. I think he was one of the only ones, uh, one of the only candidates that could have. Um, and so I think that he has calculated, um, correctly I think he's he's played the game right.
1: Yeah, I agreed. And I, I would I would expect him to be a strong candidate in in 2020, is my guess. If things go as I think they're going to go, and that kind of brings me to the the state what the state of the race for the presidency actually is. And you know, Hillary Clinton bounced back after a, a fairly brief rough stretch, and she was she's she's always been up in the national polls, but now she's up around three to four percent in national polling averages. But and I've said this time and time again, those averages don't really matter much. I mean, they're kind of a rough indicator because we don't elect presidents nationally. We do it state by state. And it drives me nuts that I see all this coverage of national polls. In fact, I'd actually argue that the national averages sometimes can be in a way kind of disinformation because they make the race seem closer than it really is. Uh, Yes. You know, and if you look at the state averages and those are what really matter, uh, Clinton and, and, and Trump right now are kind of neck and neck in Florida. Although it looks like, as the things stand where they, they stand now, that uh, she's not going to win Ohio. Um, and But still, if you look at the overall map, Clinton has a lot more electoral votes that are essentially locked up than Trump does. And she can actually afford to lose both Ohio and Florida, though that's not going to give her a lot of margin, margin for error. And You know, right now, I looked at some pollster sites, some prediction markets. They all say Clinton around a 70 percent or so chance of winning, though it's important to point out that this is number one before the first debate. And we're recording this on Sunday. That's going to happen tomorrow night. And secondly, a lot of this polling was conducted before last week's terror attacks and the unrest in Charlotte. And of course, North Carolina is nearly a toss up state there. Trump has a, a slight lead. Uh, right now. Uh, What do you think? Do all these things that have happened in the last week, the the terror thing, Charlotte, the upcoming debate, how do you think they're going to affect this?
0: Um, You know, I think that Trump had an opportunity with the terror attacks to really come down hard on on Hillary and to use it to his advantage because, you know, it sort of fell within all of the... um, categories that he continues to talk about you know he's he's got somebody who um is uh, you know uh, from afghanistan who is sort of this lone wolf who we should be keeping an eye on who we could have kept out and you know he in my mind he he kind of blew it he um he just went back to um the same things that he's been going on about which is you know keeping immigrants out and then talking about you know stop and frisk policies and um and sort of hammering on the fact that um hillary clinton you know would welcome all of these immigrants in she wants more immigrants and you know, I, I just don't think that he's convinced um, people that he would keep America safer. I think that he thinks he's convincing the, peop- peop- the American people that he would keep us safer. But, um, you know, yeah. trying to summarize his policies in a lot of ways kind of feels like trying to nail Jell-O to a wall. Sure. So yeah. yeah you
1: no. know, I, I agree. I think he he's already convinced a certain – Number of people in the you know the high the the, the mid to high forty percent range, but I don't know that he's doing anything that's going to convince any more people. Uh, I you know, but it's it's I mean it's a tough call, and, and who knows what's going to happen? i mean, you know I'm I'm particularly interested to see what's going to happen at the the debates, and I, I'm guessing that most of, most of our listeners they'll probably have. Uh, the debates have probably have already gone on by this point, so so you know who, who knows but i I, I expect you know, mostly debates don 't change things a whole lot, but Donald Trump is such a weird candidate that I could see this being a big deal, not a huge deal, but you know a couple points here and there could certainly be a big deal
0: Oh, I think these debates are going to be just fascinating I think it's going to be hard to hard to look away, and you know. Of um, these terrorist attacks, I do think that one thing that balances it out is, you know, people want somebody who has um, national security experience, you know. And I think with Hillary, I, I think that people see her as somebody who um, can lead, who has experience in the past in a lot, you know, in a lot of different offices and and they feel like they can trust her to some extent and. Um, and, you know, it's funny when you when you look at the actual election, I one one group of people who I think is sort of overlooked are Republicans who um, are voting based on their fiscal interests. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are plenty of Republicans out there who, you know, are sort of tight lipped on who they're going to vote for. But in the end, see Hillary as somebody who is going to um, keep their fiscal interests uh, in line, you know, not really change too much. And so um, I think that she's also I, – I think that she's going to end up collecting more Republican votes from fiscal Republicans as opposed to social Republicans um, and um, – I think that's something that's been sort of
1: overlooked. Well, I I certainly I've made no I made no secret of the fact that while I am not a I am not a a big Hillary Clinton fan by any means, I'm certainly going to be supporting her given, especially given the alternative. And so I hope you are right in your analysis there for sure. Um, (laughs) All right. Well, I see we're 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 running kind of long. We had a lot to say, uh, but so that that'll about do it for this week's episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and thank you, Dominique, for coming on and joining me today. I really appreciate it
0: absolutely thanks a lot for having me it yeah. was a lot
1: of fun and so everyone you know you know the deal if you have any thoughts comments criticisms or questions for us to politics guys we would love to hear from you our email is politicsguys at com. and now remember you can also leave a voice message for us by calling our listener line at 408-840-3518 again we have that number on our website but it's 408-840-3518 and our facebook page where we post throughout the week facebook.com slash politics guys page we're also on twitter at politics guys and if you're interested in helping us keep the show going sharing and retweeting our new show posts and tweets and reviewing the show on itunes or stitcher really helps and finally of course if you'd like to support the show financially you can do that through the paypal link on our website while you're there be sure to check out our listener rewards the politics guys will be back next sunday we hope you'll join us